Andrew, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. So we talked a little bit about before the episode started, uh, which we'll put at the end. We were chit-chatting about Netflix shows and Casey Anthony again, because I, we could always talk about, Why not talk about Casey Anthony. I am doing today a case that's also very polarizing. Okay. It is those cases that you either stand on one side or the other it took the nation by storm so it was the oj before there was oj oh are you doing right? what i think you're doing yeah cool. i'm doing them and then this one first this is a wild one it is a wild one so no surprise here to what happened right i will admit that i didn't know much about the Honestly, did not know any of the details. So for me, this was a, although it's a case that took place in the 80s, for me, it's a, like a newer known case. Yeah, I felt the same way when I watched a yeah. documentary on it, too. And because this happened when our parents, <laughs> Brie and I were probably not even born yet or barely a year old. <laughs> we were just a twinkle in their we were, eye. Right. We were still in diapers. This is something that took place in Beverly Hills, California. Uh-huh. And OJ, of course, for a lot of people, is going to be one of those first televised court cases that they saw beginning to end, yeah. right? From gavel to gavel. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, before that happened, so this case was the first one that was ever televised from gavel to gavel as well. Oh, cool. That almost set the president for TV's being allowed into the courtroom Mm -hmm. and it also changed the game as to america the world saw these cases and the fascination with them yeah because before you would be relying purely on newspaper articles oh yeah or your 10 o'clock news yeah exactly there was a lot of attention to it because it was rich kids yeah rich people that were killed and it was not in my opinion, but a lot of people think that these guys were cute. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe for the 80s. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so th- that garnered a lot of attention for these sure. um, for these two guys. And I, I struggle when I'm trying to say, like, group them together because a lot of people will call them boys. They were not boys when this happened. They were not. Okay. They were 18 and 21. Yeah. So they were full-blown legal adults when this happened. They were tried as adults. Nothing would have changed there. But a lot of the times, a lot of the media then and now kept referring to them as boys. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of our younger listeners, maybe this is a case they they haven't heard all the way through. So hopefully... I will be able to share with you exactly, you know, what the case was and what happened. But a lot of the interesting stuff happens well before, but it doesn't come out till after the murders. Right. So the Menendez brother or the Menendez family. So the patriarch of the family, the the father of this family was Jose Enrique Menendez. Mm Funny story, and this is why I always had this little part of my head and my brain that I wanted to know more about this story, just to make sure. Um, My dad's 
mom's maiden name, so my grandma's maiden name okay. was Menendez. Oh, okay. And my dad's middle name is Enrique. <laughs> You're like, oh man, is there a connection? So I was like, is there any connection? Yeah. Um, so they're Cuban. Okay. So Jose was Cuban. And my parents are Guatemalan, so luckily no connection. Yeah. <laughs> Although I still haven't done like my 23andMe exactly. spit test, right. so I don't know. We're Hopefully not. Family's word. Right. So Jose Enrique uh, Menendez was born in Havana, Cuba. And from an early age, he they shipped him off to the U.S., mm-hmm. right? This was to protect him. This was when Castro was taking over Cuba. And he eventually came over and he stayed at some family member's house. Like, I think it was an attic bedroom and whatnot. So he moved here when he was 16. He did well in, in high school and he eventually started going to Southern Illinois University. Okay. On a swimming scholarship. Oh, nice. Which is super cool. Yeah. I mean, good for you. So while he was at Southern Illinois University, SIU for short, is where he met what would be his future wife, Mary Louise. And she was known as Kitty to everyone. Okay. I don't yeah. know what that's short for. Is I that don't either, but I feel like in like the, like the 70s and 80s, like Kitty was a really popular nickname like, for whatever reason. I think of that 70s show. 100%. And I'm like, was her name Mary Louise too? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know where that comes from. They met. They fell in love. Mm-hmm. They loved each other. Although the family, her family didn't so much approve of this guy, of Jose, because although he was at school, he wasn't made of a fortune like her family was, right? He wasn't well off and whatnot. They married in 1963. They had been married five years. She fell pregnant. (laughs) Sorry, I love that. She she became pregnant with what would be their first son, Joseph Lyle Menendez. Right. So they had him on January 10th, 1968. After that, they moved to New York City. Jose earned a degree in accounting from Queens College. So he left oh, SIU nice. and he ended up his degree in its accounting. And we'll see here in a minute how that ties in. Yeah, that ties into his whole career, his trajectory right. through the executive world. So... At that point, Kitty quit teaching when Lyle was born. Okay. So they had Eric in 1970, November 27th, gotcha. 1970. So probably a really fun Thanksgiving there. Yeah. <laughs> um, just a little more background on Kitty. She was a former beauty queen. Mm, mm-hmm. So she was soft on the eyes. Yeah. That's probably one of the first things that attracted Jose to Mary or to Kitty. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> to Kitty. As the kids are growing up, because the father, because Jose had this degree in accounting, he put it to use right away. Mm-hmm. He was already starting his um, legacy of being a great business executive yeah. and being kind of ruthless, not doing anything shady, but when in gung ho, when it came to new ideas sure. and trying to turn businesses around. Yeah. You so kind of have to have that personality if that's what do. your job is. Yeah. So they grew up in well-to-do houses mm-hmm. and whatnot. I don't think that they left anything wanting. In some summers, they sometimes had uh, cousins come in and live with them over the summers mm-hmm. and whatnot because they had nice houses. Right. In 1986, Jose became the corporate executive to an international video entertainment company. 
Right. So that moved them to California. Mm -hmm. They made the move. They picked up the whole family and went to California. At that point, Eric went to Beverly Hills High School. He had average grades at best. He was not the best student, but was really good at tennis. Mm -hmm. And Lyle, at that age, he at that point when they moved to California, had already been going to like Princeton prep classes oh yeah because the dad had money to pay Uh for that and they he ended up going to princeton university where he was suspended for plagiarism oh and he had overall poor grades it's i couldn't find a specific source to confirm this but apparently jose with the money that he had the power that he carried he tried to like quote unquote bribe the school the mm-hmm. dean to try and keep his kid in the school the dean said that doesn't work here right we have a reputation to protect exactly <laughs> they were both tennis players though yeah tennis was something that they both did from early on jose encouraged it mm-hmm. and some would say demanded of them to be yeah. elite athletes yeah so eric eventually by the time he was in high school, he was already ranking nationally under the U18 teams. Mm-hmm. That's just a little background on them. Kitty became a stay-at-home mom. Right. As the kids grew up, her and Jose started having more and more marital problems. Mm-hmm. It sounds like Jose was very obviously cheating on her or having okay. extramarital affairs and not just like one-time encounters, but having full-blown relationships with other women. Mm-hmm. And Kitty didn't just like turn a blind eye to it, but she also took to self-medication right, as a way of coping with it. Right. So she uh, allegedly abused prescription drugs uh-huh. and took to alcohol as well. As her mechanism of coping with all this. So while all that is happening, the boys are still living, you know, this lavish life. Like I said, they don't have anything that they really need at this age. They have girlfriends. They're really successful with the girls. And they have cars now. So dad also gives them all this stuff for them. Right. They also have an image to uphold. Sure. Living in this area. Yeah. At this point, when they first moved to California, they were living in Calabasas. Calabasas is a very ritzy place. Mm-hmm. That's where your Kardashians I was going to say, that makes me think of the Kardashians. That's all I know about Calabasas, yeah. <laughs> other than it stands for pumpkins in Spanish. Oh. So, that's it. There's a fun trivia so, fact for you. The Kardashians live in pumpkins. <laughs> there you go. Is that a Cinderella story or Maybe. something? Maybe. I mean, if you think Kinda. about it. If you think about it. Cinderella story with the sex tape. So Calabasas um, and Beverly Hills are really close to each other. So while they were living there, their house was getting built in Beverly Hills. This is going to be like a custom home for them. But like I said, they're also keeping up appearances to the outside world. So Kitty, another way that she coped with all of this other stuff that's happening in her life. One of the things she did is that she would go on every business trip with Jose. So that was her way of keeping an eye on him, keeping an eye on him, but also traveling. Yeah. And can't blame her. If I'm in this shit marriage, I might as well travel. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, get drunk in new places. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. What's your special here? Absolutely. She would also go shopping. Okay. She would go shop. And I mean, there's a point, there's a reason for the phrase retail therapy, Uh right? 
For some people, it works. Yeah. For me, it's window shopping. Yeah. But because I don't have the money to. I was gonna say a lot more budget friendly. Buy it. Yeah. But so she would buy stuff, and one of the sources said that it her shopping was not out of hand, but it was so frivolous that she would instead of wash clothes go buy clothes okay so that's the kind of shopping that she did excessive exactly yeah another thing that we learned later was that and this is so weird but lyle at the young young age of 14 started having a receding hairline oh so dad went and got him a toupee stop yeah at 14. So at 14, he started wearing a hairpiece. Oh, my gosh. You're just, like, breathing insecurities oh into my this gosh. child. And then the brother didn't even know. Eric didn't even know till <laughs> now they're adults that his brother had been wearing a toupee this whole time. That's wild. I mean, you're crazy? in California. You have swimming pools. How could you not figure out that your brother... <laughs> That's crazy. Let me tell you, there's a girl on TikTok with that gorilla glue that could tell you you could keep that <laughs> you on. You can keep that on. For through everything. Oh my God. So fast forward, right? They're living this lavish life in California. The dad has had many jobs. He's landed on this one. Fun fact, he was also an executive at one point at Hertz, the rental car company, mm. during the same time that OJ Simpson was the face. For their advertisements. Oh. And we weren't even born then. But, right. Um, O.J. Simpson was like the face. Yeah. Of Hertz. Every ad had his, had him in it. That's an interesting parallel. So they knew each other. They hung out together sometimes. They would throw around the pigskin. Yeah. So that just the weird coincidence. coincidence that they both knew each other sure. and Were one would get murdered and one was a murder. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, okay. So, um, again, I'm going to fast forward to the night of the murders, right? Yeah. Obviously someone dies in this story. So in this story, in this case, the parents are killed mm-hmm. on August 20th, 1989. So you and I were both, Almost 11 months old. Yeah. <laughs> we were close to that. I was eight months old. So on August 20th, 1989, 911 gets a phone call from Lyle Menendez. Yes. So that's the older kid. He goes by Lyle. I'll call him Lyle throughout. His actual name is Joseph Lyle. Mm-hmm. So he is named after his father, but he goes by his middle name. Right. They get a phone call from him. This infamous 911 call. We'll probably put it on here, but Lyle is, if you don't know anything about this case, if someone were to put this 911 call in front of you, he sounds hysterical. Yeah. He sounds like he just walked in on his parents that were murdered. Right. And they were. Mm-hmm. Both parents were murdered in the den of their house. Mm-hmm. They had been watching 007, so the TV was still on. And they had a bowl of ice cream with strawberries mm-hmm. in the den with them because yeah. they were just watching a movie. The boys call or the Lyle calls 911 and he says that someone shot their parents. Mm-hmm. Someone killed his parents. The police take a minute to get there. And because they know that there's been 
a shooting, they don't go directly into the house. They actually call the boys again on their phone and tell them to step out the house. When the boys both... See, I keep calling them boys. Yeah. I keep calling them boys, but... Uh, and I I don't know my brain but anyway so the guys come out the kids come out and they are in hysterics yeah Eric apparently balled up on the lawn of the house and Lyle was comforting him mm-hmm. and the cops went into the house they you know made sure there was no active person shooting in the house or right. shooter in the house um, and they cleared that. What happens next is incompetency at its best. (laughs) The Beverly Hills Police Department, and I will say this, they don't see gruesome crimes like this on Uh a daily basis. Sure. So they, maybe even at this point, were not equipped and didn't have that experience of walking in on a scene like this. Right. And trying to figure out what to do next, who to talk to, what to talk to them about, what to collect, what to tape off or or rope off so Mm -hmm. no one could touch. Um, So a lot of what happens is they're comforting the boys. For all intents and purposes, they are looking at two kids that saw their parents murdered, Mm -hmm. called 911, and now they're hysterical. Right. So they seem like genuinely grieving kids. Sure. They never take the second or take the time to do any testing on either Lyle or Eric for any gunshot residue Mm -hmm. on their hands. They take them in to try and talk to them. But there's not much talking because, again, they're crying so uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. So they let them go. Yeah. At one point, Lyle brings up possible mob connections. Right. As to why someone would have killed his parents. Yeah. And more specifically, his dad being the target. He, you know, puts the idea out there. Hey, my dad works with really high powered people. Right. He could have pissed someone off. He could have, you know, done a bad deal. Or someone could have just wanted him out of the picture for something. Yeah, exactly. So, and just to put it in perspective, that that was a plausible scenario. Jose was working at a video company that had recently had successes like Rambo. Right. So there's a lot of money there. Yeah. There's a lot of money uh-huh. there. Um, especially in like late 80s, early 90s. Rambo was like... It was it. It was a big deal. It was a huge deal. Huge deal. Yeah. Our parents will tell you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the boys are essentially never suspected as suspects or persons of interest. Mm-hmm. So they're let go. They were never held to begin with, but they're let go. Right. They say, go grieve with your family. Exactly. So we'll try and figure this out as yeah. best as we can. So one of the other things that made it like a plausible idea for the police that this might have been a mob hit, and this is why they followed this lead so far, was because both Jose and Kitty received shots to the knees. So they were kneecapped, Mm -hmm. which is something that, I mean, not that you would know this, but, you know, that excessive... um, 
shooting or the the kind of shooting that sends a message. Yeah, exactly. This is definitely like mob written all over mob it. style execution yeah. like yeah. um you know like was it svu like leave a quarter in there or you know some people like leave a quarter like call someone who cares or something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. Uh-huh. so it's just like it's sending a message right um so at that point the boys go and they're with their families apparently the day after the shooting they um show up back up at the house and they asked to get some things from the house. And one of those things was their tennis equipment, Mm -hmm. which is odd. Yeah. I don't know that I would be thinking about recreational activities. Sure. The day my parents are found murdered. Yeah. Brutally murdered. Um, But they do. And again, everyone copes differently. Right. I know that I wouldn't be thinking about that. Could have been their outlet. Right. But. Exactly. Very odd. So after the murders, they attend the funerals. I believe both of the brothers um, talked at the funerals for the parents. Um, It was attended by a lot of people. Of course, um, being a family with wealth and power, they the boys went out and got suits and Mm -hmm. whatnot um, because they didn't have access to all of their wardrobe in the house. And one of the uncles suggested, let's go buy suits. Um, They did go stay with aunts and uncles during this time and even though they obviously there's things that need to happen before like insurance pays out or estate sells you know so um all the money that the boys had access to was filtered through the aunt and uncle okay so any dime that they wanted to spend had to be approved by them right so one of these things was let's go get you a suit and i don't know if they got this from kitty But retail therapy seemed to be their thing. Mm -hmm. And they, along to go with those new suits, they got some Rolexes. Yep. Those aren't cheap. No, they're not. Soon after the funerals and whatnot, uh, Lyle traded in his Alfa Romeo, which is already an expensive-ass car, um, for a Porsche. Mm -hmm. And Eric, something a little more subtle, he just went and got a Jeep. Yeah. Because he needed transportation. They were still driving mom's car around as well. But um, they did some traveling, fun traveling, mm-hmm. some would say. And then Eric, because he was more, he was the the one that was way more involved in tennis than Lyle was. He also, instead of going to UCLA for tennis, like he was initially put on the trajectory for, uh-huh. he started entering tournaments. Okay. To try and become professional. So that's gotcha. how you start ranking up. You right. start getting whatever. And one of these... Um, you probably have to pay to get into those oh, tournaments. Yeah. yeah. You have to pay. You have to pay the coach and the staff that goes right, with right. you. Um, and then all the equipment. Like tennis equipment is not... Tennis is not a sport for your lower income or middle class right. people. <laughs> so it's an expensive sport. Plus he hired a personal coach to get him there because... He had the potential to go professional. Right. So the boys start traveling. They start doing all these things. Uh, Lyle invests in some companies with their um, last name on them that would be like investment companies. They also buy a restaurant in New Jersey, which is where they lived. It was like a hot wing restaurant. Okay. Um, Eric always wanted to be a restaurateur. Hmm. So that's what he invested some of the money in. All in all, 
in those first couple of months, in about three months, the boys spent about $700,000. Wow. In today's money, it's about a quarter and a half, a mill and a half. Good so, God. yeah, that's a lot of that's money lot of to money. spend really quickly. Mm-hmm. During that time, though, as they were, quote unquote, grieving, the boys already had this habit and they continued it of doing like petty burglaries or like actually breaking into people's houses to their neighbor's houses. Right. And... When dad was alive, dad would settle out of court with people and make it up to them for what the kids stole. Mm -hmm. This was, this was put off a lot, but the kids were doing it out of rebellion because they didn't need the money, the jewelry, whatever it was. They were doing this because... That was their fun. It's kind of like bling ring type of shit. Yeah, yeah. You know, like they had no reason to go do it. Just attention seeking Just behavior. Attention. Just for the thrill See of it. See if I can get away with it. Exactly. Yeah. So the dad would pay off a lot of these people. Um, I'd be so pissed. Yeah. Even if I had the money to do it, I'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? And one of those times, like towards the end when um, Eric was still under 18 and Lyle was over 18, mm-hmm. um, but er- Lyle was so close to going to university and becoming an adult, and he was over 18. Jose even had Eric take the whole legal blame of it. Right. So that Lyle wouldn't have any of those repercussions. Uh-huh. Um, so that was just one of the agreements that they came to. Another agreement was that the boys would go t- talk to someone, to like a psychologist, um, yeah. about their issues Mm -hmm. like why are you doing this right um the conversations with that psychiatrist like if you've ever visited someone the relationship is always there yeah you need it and the boys continue to see this person um it was very casual for the most part it sounds like and i couldn't find this specifically but the person that they were visiting was um psychologist jeremy oziel oziel Mm -hmm. He might have had, like, a home office. Oh, okay. So I don't think it was in a building or a hospital. I think it was one of the, like, home offices. Sure. And and that kind of checks for me because it's, like, rich people probably don't want to go to a hospital or a clinic. Exactly. They probably just want to knock on someone's door and walk in. Right. (sighs) So the boys continued talking to the psychologist. And about two, three months afterwards... um, they had confessed to their psychologist that they had actually carried out the murder. Yeah. And at that point, you've told your psychologist, and unless you're meaning to harm anyone else, or you're a danger to anyone else or yourself, it's doctor-patient confidentiality. Mm-hmm. And now, did... Were they like in a session together and told the psychologist or did one confess and then the other one followed? Separate. Yeah. Separate. And why I also think this was like a home office type of situation was because Dr. Ozeal had a girlfriend at the time mm-hmm. who I believe was a mistress. Okay. I think. Like a sex worker? No. Okay. <laughs> just a side piece just a side okay um 
And don't quote me on that. It was a scorned woman nonetheless. Okay. So while they were in session, she, and there's differing accounts of this. I've heard on one of them that she eavesdropped Mm. on the conversation. Mm -hmm. And then specifically talking about the guys confessing to the murders. Right. And the other version that I've heard is that Mr. Ozeal, uh, Dr. Ozeal, told her right what had happened in those sessions. Uh-huh. And the only reason that he told her, supposedly, is because he himself was threatened by Lyle mm. that should he say something, maybe something bad would happen right. to him as well. Right. Little did he know that if he didn't say that, it probably would have never left sure. that office. Right. They were being recorded consensually. Uh-huh. Um, again, another thing. Yeah. <laughs> Don't let anyone record you. <laughs> but towards the end of three months after the parents being killed, the psychiatrist's girlfriend comes forward to the police and says, I know who killed them. Uh-huh. And there's proof of it. There is recordings of the sessions. Um, apparently, she had been broken up with. Uh, Dr. Rosiel broke up with her. Okay. She's a scorned woman. Yep. And I I don't know how telling on them was going to get back at Dr. Rosiel. Right. But still, that's what she did. And luckily she did because the cops were like nowhere near really thinking that the boys did it. Right. I mean, at this point in time, the media was already broadcasting this murder or... No, because maybe that was part of her, like, not necessarily to get back at the psychologist, but to, I don't know, get herself some form of fame and recognition. So at this point, and that's a really good question, there was, of course, some media coverage on it because a murder, a double, gruesome, brutal murder happened in Beverly Hills. Yeah. But that was like... Your 10 o'clock news, maybe for a couple of days. Okay. And after that, it just kind of went radio silent. It hadn't really been, like, sensationalized. No. It was just, like, a touch-and-go right. broadcast. So after she came forward to the police and said, hey, there is confession tapes of these guys saying mm-hmm. they killed their parents, the cops jumped on it. Yeah. And went and arrested Lyle. Eric was actually in Israel at the time mm-hmm. at a tennis tournament. So they arrested Lyle on March 8th. 1990, and they arrested Eric when he came back from right. Israel because he, or Lyle told the police, don't worry, he's coming back. We're not trying to escape. He's going to come back. Yeah. So he promised that he would come back. So three days later, yeah. they arrested Eric at LAX. So this was, the murders happened in August. So and about the worst, six months later. Yeah, so six, not too months. much later. Yeah. So that's when... The media was like, oh, shit, it was the kids. Right. That's when it kind of exploded, because now you have these well-to-do kids that, you know, dress sharp and were living life what seemed like lavishly afterwards Mm -hmm. or spending their parents' money um, had actually turned out they're the ones that killed their parents. Right. So what happened first was what the question of whether or not these tapes were even admissible. Mm, mm-hmm. to the court so there was a lot of pretrial hearings there was a lot of hearings for this on whether or not again it fell under uh, patient 
and doctor confidentiality. Right. Or if it's something that, hey, they're talking about murder, we should admit it. So it turns out that because there was three tapes that were in question and two out of the three tapes were allowed to eventually be presented as evidence. Two of the three. Okay. Because in one of them is where you can hear the threat to the doctor. Okay. So that at that moment, the doctor patient confidentiality is out the door. Yeah, exactly. Because now you're threatening someone else's Uh life. During these pretrial hearings, even though it's on tape, the defense was going to say, nope, they didn't kill the parents. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now that they know know that, because regardless, the DA was going to go after these kids now for the murders. Now, once they were admitted, that's when the defense turned the tables and was like, okay, yes, they did do the shooting, but here's why. Right. And that big why is what also exploded in the media. Yep. So before the trials began, the court made the decision to allow TVs into the courtroom, mm-hmm. which again had never been done before. Right. They were going to show from beginning of end, uh, beginning of the day till the end of the day every day. This trial lasted 4 months. Yeah. It was a long one. This was so for us now court TVs like you don't even think about it. You know what it is. You know what they're there for. Right. You can tune in at any given time and see what's happening in a courtroom or with a case and whatnot. Court TV, this was like their beginning. Yeah. They hadn't even really been a whole channel at this point. Exactly. So they started with the Menendez brothers. Fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> so. Starting off with a bang. Yes, they did. Um. So, to be more exact, 16 bangs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, the trials began, um, and there was no dispute as to what happened the night of August 20th. Uh-huh. The boys at first, um, when all of this first started, said that they were off at the movies, that they were watching Batman, um, and then they were going to go to the Taste of L.A. with a couple of friends. But mm-hmm. Eric had forgotten his fake ID at home so that he could partake in some of the like wine tastings right. and whatnot. So after the movie, they came home to get the fake ID. And that's when they discovered their parents. Mm-hmm. Turns out that what really happened is that that night of August 20th, the parents were in the den watching a movie and without emotions or any context the boys walked in with shotguns 12 gauge pump action shotguns Mm -hmm. lyle started the shooting by shooting jose in the back of the head and there's debate on whether jose was actually sitting during the first shot or Mm -hmm. whether he was standing okay during the first shot i think the evidence leads more towards sitting okay um just because blood splatter the way that the shots entered, where their the shots are at. So most of the shots, Jose was shot a total of six times. Wow. His fatal shot was to the back of the head. Yeah, I would think so with a shotgun. And that's including the kneecapping. Yeah. Now, for everyone that's not a gun enthusiast, and not saying that I'm an expert, but just to explain it a little bit and give you a visual. With 12 gauge shells there's four different kinds maybe five but you have your bird shot Mm -hmm. 
it's filled with a bunch of little tiny pellets. Yep. Then you have your buckshots. Yes. That have less pellets, but bigger pellets. Mm -hmm. And then I believe there's a different size, also called a buckshot, that has less pellets, but bigger pellets. And then there's your, oh man, I don't know what it's called, um, slugger, maybe? You know better than me. I think it's slugger or slug. That's just one big ass motherfucking bullet. (laughs) My God. So the size of like the shotgun shell. Right. That's the size just, of it. That's just the bullet. So birdshot is used a lot by hunters. Uh-huh. So they have a better spray and they can hit their target like a bird or a duck. It's pretty much like a firework when it yes, goes off. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The boys had bought these guns. The murder happened on Sunday. They had bought these guns on Friday at a big five sporting goods store. Oh, wow. They bought it with a fake ID. Mm-hmm. Well... It was a real ID, but it was a friend's ID. Right. They walked in and said, we want home protection. (laughs) And the guy was like, okay, here's some shotguns. Yeah. That's pretty good Uh protection. Especially if you don't know what you're doing with a gun or if you're not good at aiming, a shotgun is going to give you better, not accuracy, but you're more likely to hit your target. Exactly. If you don't know how to aim. And I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, but I also feel like more people are likely to turn around and run in the other direction when you point a shotgun (laughs) at them because they know the damage that it can do. When you pump it. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, I don't (laughs) know where... The sound of the pump is intimidating enough. I don't know where I heard this fact, but I think I was like 10, that the sound of a pumping shotgun... A sh- pumping a shotgun is one of the most deterring sounds there is. Mm-hmm. So there's actually alarms out there that instead of like a bark dark, a, a bark darking. Wow. <laughs> a dog barking because, you know, instead of an alarm, they'll play a dog barking. Uh-huh. They just play the pumping of a shotgun. That's smart. And burglars will run away because yeah. fuck yeah, I don't want to get sure. hit by a shotgun. Uh-uh. So when they bought the shotguns, they bought it, they just picked up something off the shelf because these guys did not really handle shotguns before or guns, and they bought birdshot. Mm. And then they realized, I don't know if they did research, but they went back that Saturday in the morning and bought the buckshots. Okay. So different kinds of shells at this Mm -hmm. point. They had already loaded the bird shots into the into the shotguns at mm-hmm. this point and left the other sh- shells in the car. So this is important because after Lau had shot Jose and Eric was tasked with or he went towards Kitty at this mm-hmm. point. And Kitty, you can tell by where she's laying in the pictures and, and you know at the scene, she was probably standing. Okay. Because she heard the first shot. Right. And probably wonder what the fuck. Yeah. And got up. Yeah. So she was shot um, in the, the torso mainly, a lot of places. Um, but she wasn't quite dead. Mm. They ran out of shells at that point. Oh my God, that's brutal. So the boys went out to the car together to reload, mm-hmm. come back in. And finished the job. And finished a job on Kitty. So her fatal shotgun wound was to the face. Oh my God. To her left cheek. They destroyed. They Both of them were 
not recognizable. Yeah. They were obliterated. I was a shotgun say, will do a lot of yeah, damage. I was going to say, if describing how the bullets <laughs> ignite when they come out of the gun doesn't kind of paint a clear enough picture for you, like when something is actually hit with a shotgun, it's not just like a single Mm-mm. bullet hole. It it pretty much blows up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A good surface area of whatever you hit. I mean, the one shotgun bullet for the birdshot has like 30 different pellets. The buckshot has like maybe 15 or 20, but they're heavier and they're bigger and they're just like... So imagine stippling that we know from a regular gun Mm -hmm. that might happen just from little fragments that are... Or explosives that are going on around if it's close range. But imagine that with more bullets... (laughs) It it's is gruesome. So, it was such an overkill. And you're shooting at such a close, oh, a closer yeah. range than you are when you're out hunting a deer yeah. or a duck or anything like that. So that happened at around ten ish. All of these shots, yeah, sixteen shots. Oh my god! The boys waited around and thought, "We live in Beverly Hills. Someone must have heard that." Uh huh. We're waiting for the cops. They're like, no, they're just watching Scarface. (laughs) Right? No one showed up. Yeah. So they, in their minds, thought like, well, shit, then what do we do? Right. Because now they've waited too long to call for like, I don't know, like a heat of the moment type of thing. Uh Uh-huh. So they decided at that point to try and go build that alibi. They went and and bought the Batman ticket. Right. But they actually left out the back exit. Mm-hmm. They took the guns and they made shallow little holes for them on the side of a freeway and put them in there. Yeah. They took off their clothes and and that's when they came back um, and called 911. Right. During the testimonies that there was like 52 witnesses brought to the stand. Oh, Wow. There, that's that's, that's why it took so fucking long. Yeah, the defense went hard. Mm-hmm. They really brought out everyone yeah. on this case, and they brought one of the neighbors. Um, but you're in Beverly Hills. You're not living wall to wall here. No, you're not. I mean, the Menendezes had tennis court and an Olympic sized pool at their house. Yeah, <laughs> so you're not going to share walls with your neighbors but nonetheless her window was open it was august it was hot she remembers listening to like a succession of what now she knows are shots Mm -hmm. but thought it was like a chinese firework okay she has set off chinese fireworks herself so she if you can picture it they light up on one end then they have to go around the top so there's a little bit of a pause Uh and then they start off again okay so because there was a pause and they started off again, she thought it was like a Chinese firework. That's, that was her experience. Let me tell you, here in my neighborhood, in like our Facebook page, if every night there's some old lady, love them to death, yeah. it's like, was that a shot or a firework? Yeah. Every single or a car backfiring. Night, yes. Yeah. And we're like, no, Carol, it's okay. It's just <laughs> someone got fireworks. Exactly. So she thought it was fireworks at the time, come to find out. But that confirmed the timeline that the shots actually happened around 10 uh-huh. and not like right. You know, the boys didn't call till like 1147 mm-hmm. for the 911 call. 
So the way that the trial was set up, the defense was now not like they didn't pull the trigger. That's easy and done. They know that they've pulled the trigger. Mm -hmm. But the bombshell that was dropped on a lot of people at the time, obviously it's not a bombshell for us now, but the boy, uh, the defense brought up that these boys, God, I keep saying boys, that Lyle and Eric were both incestually sexually abused all through their childhood. Yeah. They both took the stand Mm -hmm. to discuss the details and both Lyle and Eric had their own stories and their own situations that they recounted Mm -hmm. because for a lot of it, Lyle and Eric didn't know that each other was getting right sexually abused right and they brought in aunts they brought in cousins they brought in all kinds of family members to confirm their details as to what was happening not to the extent of we saw it happening but more of we thought it was happening or looking back yes some things were weird yeah So, and this brings me back to, like, Casey Anthony. Mm -hmm. Some people think that for Eric and Lyle, this was a show. Right. And some people think this was An easy story to throw out there to justify their actions. Yes. Yeah. So, with all the witnesses that came on, um, I think... In my personal opinion, I do think that sexual abuse was happening mm-hmm. or happened. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until they were older that Eric actually told Lyle that it was happening to him as well. Yeah. Apparently, both of the boys really couldn't wait to get the hell out of their house. Uh-huh. Um, but it was when Jose found out that Eric had told Lyle that shit hit the fan Mm -hmm. and this was their defense right that shit hit the fan that there had been ominous conversations happening with the parents and murmuring around the house and in their paranoia i mean they were living in this state of trauma i think they thought that the parents were going to plot to kill them Mm -hmm. and this would be to save their reputation their image and whatnot where the defense failed I think was that they didn't say the sexual abuse happened that day, Mm -hmm. that night. Mm -hmm. And this was Mm self-defense. They had brought it in as, Hey, this has been happening for years. Right. In the eyes of the law, that's not how like self-defense works. No, you have to be in immediate danger. Right. Um, to defend yourself with such force. Exactly. So the trial lasted four months, 50 something people on the stand, so many witnesses. I listened to all of it on like two times speed on YouTube. It is a crazy amount of speed. Uh, I mean, witnesses, so much information. I could probably tell you more about the Menendez brothers than I ever thought I would be able to at this point. Um, some details are neither here or there. Um, you know, things that definitely stood out were like no gunshot residue tests were done on, on both of them. Right. Um, just 
a lot of what was talked about was the officers that were first or detectives that were first on the scene. They were trying to gather what their perception of Lyle and Eric was immediately after. Mm -hmm. And, you know, luckily there wasn't much of a debate. There wasn't a debate as to like who was behind the guns. Right. So all that was really on, on trial was whether or not, the sexual abuse warranted them taking such huge actions right. towards the parents. The jury, they tried them separately. So they each had their own trial, mm-hmm. but together, um, the juries deliberated for about a month on each. Oh, wow. They deliberated for a really long time. Yeah, I forgot about that part. And... It was evenly mixed female males mm-hmm. on the jury. And this is, I don't know that this has ever happened before, but all the females on the jury wanted to acquit and all the males wanted to convict. Mm. So eventually, both of their trials ended up with hung juries. Yeah. The court, the moment they released that they were hung juries, immediately announced that they would be retrying this case. Okay, yeah. Because they were not going to be retried, um, there were more pre-trial hearings on whether or not the conversations, the witnesses, the evidence of sexual abuse and misconduct was going to be admissible to the second trial mm. for both of them. Mm-hmm. And after many hearings, the court decided that, no, that information was no longer going to be presented to the jury mm-hmm. because of, like we said, it didn't, although it, it might, it, it's true, it might have been true sure. and traumatizing to them, it didn't warrant the actions they took that night and nothing of that nature happened that day to say this is why this happened. Right. Well, and even with that, it doesn't really sound like they had a whole lot of like concrete, I guess, evidence that those allegations were even true because it doesn't sound like the boys disclosed the abuse to anyone other than themselves. The only other people that would have known would have been the dad or the mom. I mean, I mean, I know you said that they had relatives that were like, yeah, we kind of thought maybe something was weird, but doesn't sound like they, even they did, those people, had, like... They did tell a cousin. They did tell a cousin. They did tell a cousin that stayed with them um, that, you know, dad would ask him for, like, penis massages. Okay. Um, so he is one of the people that testified. Gotcha. Although he was one of the ones that didn't remain anonymous but didn't want to go into the court and give his testimony Mm -hmm. so he was a recorded testimony because he didn't want to be in court because it was being televised so he was one of the witnesses that was quote unquote brought in there was also an aunt that lived with them that testified that um, like nightly routine Jose would take the boys up for a shower and no one was allowed on the second floor whatsoever right um, so things like that. Sure. Um, and then Lyle also, while while he took the stand, he admitted that once um, they didn't know at this point that dad was doing this to them individually, 
but that he even took Eric out into the woods several times and sexually molested him Mm. with a toothbrush. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because this kid was fucked up and he thought this was, like, normal. This is what dads and sons do. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So, second trial, no TVs, no evidence of the sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and this also lasted some time, but eventually both of them were found guilty of first degree murder mm-hmm. and conspiracy to commit murder. And once they were sentenced, they were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And yeah. they were at that point sent to separate prisons. Right. Um, this whole time they were separated in different prisons. Eventually, and excuse me, eventually on April 2018, they finally moved to the same prison. Mm-hmm. So the first time since they were sentenced um, in 96 were they able to see each other. Wow. So decades yeah. later, they were finally able to see each other. Other prison mates and whatnot say that they embraced for minutes. Just I'm sure. Silence. Yeah. Um, but now they get to eat their foods together uh-huh. and talk to each other. Um, throughout those years, they always played a chess game by mail. Oh, it's a long that's chess funny. game. Um, and I mean, to this day, a lot of people still stand behind them during their first and second, during both of their trials. Their family was there to support them. Uh huh. The grandma and the girlfriend sat on the front row every day. Yeah. And. Some family members to this day say, of course, no one deserves to die. Right. But also they should believe them about the sexual abuse. Yeah. And something that is talked about a lot is that, oh, the cops were on to them because of the spending and everything afterwards. They were on to them. They were on to them. And it was really just this whistleblower person that, um, you know, brought it all to light. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to touch on that just a little bit. Okay. The boys were already rich. Yeah. Their spending habits didn't really change. Right. And it wasn't like they were out just swiping cards. All of these big purchases had to be approved by aunts and uncles. Right. So they were quote unquote approved. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't think, I mean, maybe the cops saw it as weird that they were spending a lot, but I don't think it was that weird. Right. They were already spending. Yeah, they, 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 grew, they grew up with all that money. They, they were already used to all the nice things. Yeah. And yeah. So they were, I mean, had nothing happened, they were going to inherit the $14 million estate. Right. Um, and then on top of that, the dad's business um, well, not his business, but the business he worked for mm-hmm. had also taken out several life insurance policies on him because mm-hmm. he was such a key man person. Right. Um, that they were going to inherit another five million on top of that. Wow. So, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, it was the spending. It was the spending. I'll tell you this. The grand jury, when they were first indicted, did not indict them on murder for financial gain. Okay. And I think that's because enough evidence was presented that they already had this lifestyle. Yeah. So that's not really that weird to me. Exactly. Sure. Did they spend a little bit more? Because they needed cars. Right. And they wanted to seemingly keep going in life like 
venture into a business or mm-hmm. invest into their tennis future. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. But dropping this kind of money wasn't that big to them. Yeah, exactly. So. It seems excessive to us, but right. to them it was just, that's how they grew up. That to was me, their norm. as a poor folk, I'm like, you dropped how much on a watch? Yeah, seriously. Well, I bought three Rolexes. That's crazy. Which is a lot. Yeah. So, like I said, this this is very polarizing. You're either on one side or the other. Um, I mean, everyone that came in as a witness, um, the dad was very ruthless. Mm-hmm. That goes without question. Yeah. Um, he had a like a like an, a complex because he wanted to be successful. Mm-hmm. It, you know, definitely a rags to riches kind of story mm-hmm. for for Jose and. He wanted his kids to be the best. Right. Did he go about it the right way? Probably not. I mean, tennis coaches, there's a tennis coach that uh, testified, said he even quit because Jose was so overbearing and he thought he was a better coach than he had been. And he had been coaching the kids for 10 years at this point. Right. Um, So everyone in their lives, you know, in hindsight says, yes, Jose was too hard on these kids. Um, he called them like thoroughbreds at one point. Mm. He just wanted them to be the best of the best mm-hmm. and like raise them almost as if they were horses. Like it, it's just this whole thing. Um, and then on the other side, there's people that think had they not been got or had they been, you know, accused of this, um, or not accused of this, all of this would have never come out. And yeah, you're right. It probably never would have come out because who wants to talk about being sexually abused by their dad? Yeah, exactly. On a, on national television. television. Right. Um, so you're right. It probably would have never come out, but that's not because they didn't, they didn't want to talk about it, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but then there's the, on the contrary, the there's one of the guards at the court that told the uh, prosecution that they even saw both the guys high five after they had both finished giving testimony about the sexual abuse Mm. kind of like we did a good job Mm -hmm. they also had two years where they got to or sorry uh, yeah two years to prepare for the first trial right where they practiced or talked about it for four hours every day okay wow so maybe, and some people think it's an exaggeration, like maybe there's some truth behind it, but maybe right. it was exaggerated. So nonetheless, you know, there's the, the not the legend, that sounds terrible, <laughs> um, but there's so many firsts in this case that make it unforgettable. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, so, I know. When I, I remember when I watched a documentary about it, I was kind of... My mind was joggled. I didn't really know which direction I leaned in, to be perfectly honest, because I think that abuse happens and it makes people do things that are probably super out of character for them. But then, you know, the little details, like you said, of how long they could have planned it, you know, the not not disclosing, you know, Mm -hmm. the abuse over the years, but it just seems a convenient story to be able to tell without having someone there to defend themselves necessarily. 
Um, and then just another fun fact that I think helps people <laughs> jump to one side of the fence and the other mm-hmm. is that Eric, while he was in high school, um, along with one of his best friends and tennis teammates and whatnot, he wrote a screenplay called Friends. Mm-hmm. In this screenplay, it opens up with two kids killing their parents. Oh. And getting away with it. Okay. Well, and killing like three other family members as well. That's dark. Very dark. Uh, very, very dark. Yeah. And obviously, almost to a T, what happened with their parents. Exactly. So the premeditation, I think, obviously the conspiracy to commit murder was proven. They went and bought the guns for this purpose. Exactly. Um, Another fun, fun fact, um, murders happened on Sunday. On Saturday, they had hired a charter boat to go shark fishing. Oh. And so it was all four of them had gone onto a charter boat. And the person that um, the captain of the boat was one of the witnesses. And he said that, first of all, they (laughs) missed their launch time by Mm -hmm. hours. So they had to launch later in the evening, um, which also accounts for the boys going earlier that same day back to Big Five to get a different kind of caliber. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but he said that the entire time that they were there, um, first they weren't dressed for the weather because it was going to be a later type of trip now. Right. So the boys were wearing like shirts and or shorts and flip flops and whatnot, but they were at the bow 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 at the ship the the front of the they were at the front of the ship (laughs) (laughs) they were at the front of the ship and they were getting soaked and whatnot but he said that the tension could be cut with a knife yeah and so that happened saturday and the murders happened sunday and then when he heard of it on the news the next day he turned around and told his son the boys did it. Yeah. Because he had firsthand seen within 24 hours the type of tension. Right. Um, one of the theories that the boys have, or the, <laughs> Eric and Lyle have put out there, is that that night they had heard um, Jose and Kitty like whispering, and they thought that was the night that they were going to murder them. Right. And... Because they had asked, I guess, permission to go out or they said that they were going to go somewhere like Eric and Lyle and Jose and Kitty said no. So in their minds, they thought that they were keeping them home to kill them. Mm. That's their story. And I think they're sticking to it. Yeah. We're 30 years in. They're sticking to that story. (laughs) So that's the case of the Menendez brother. Menendez brothers. it, it it's it's, it's a such case. a good like flagship case mm-hmm. in in the world of um true having, crime yeah of true crime and having cases like that publicly known you know like you said it was the first of its of its kind to to be televised like that and to kind of get sensationalized yeah. and um yeah it, it's a good one i mean the murder is pretty brutal and unforgettable especially given the context and the um you know, where, where it happened. And their second trial, just another fun fact, because this case is full of fun facts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
they were, um, their second trial started in July of 1996. And that did not grab as much media attention, not only because there was not TVs allowed this time, but if you know true crime, OJ had just been arrested. Oh. For yeah, people were way interested in that. Then, oh yeah, in the second trial. Oh yeah, yeah. So at that point, um, their stardom kind of fizzled out. Mm-hmm. Um, but OJ was more the spotlight yeah, at this point in nineteen ninety six. So for sure, um, as far as trials go, yeah, yeah, wild, yeah, cool. Well, great job covering that case. It's a lot of information. It is a lot of information. I know you probably could have given so much more. I'm looking at all my notes. And you you know how I do my notes. They're like spider webs. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, there's some details that I'm like, they're neither here or there. But if you guys have any questions on it, if you want to talk about it, let's talk about it. Um, I I didn't want to make this a two-part because it would just be more opinions. Sure. famous Uh and all of that happened i was in the middle of like hookah bars in college so (laughs) true true no idea and then so we sat down and watched it and yeah it's it went from this wholesome you know 
hero type story mm-hmm. and the unassuming hero yeah. to and murderer. murderer. <laughs> so it's, it's a wild story. Definitely check out. Is that Netflix? It is on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's um it's a good watch. It is. And I like that it was just a documentary instead of like several parts. Exactly. I know. My goodness. I'm getting a little bit burnt out on the series. I know you and I were talking yep. about the Casey, An- Casey Anthony one the other day, and I can't get ep- through episode number three. It just oh. does not have my attention at all, and I 100% yeah. do not believe her. I haven't even gotten through episode number two. Yeah. It's- I'm halfway through two right now, and I mean, when I say right now... I started watching it like the day it came out yeah. and we had just recently covered Casey mm-hmm. Anthony. So everything was fresh in my mind Yeah, and just listening to her, watching her mannerisms. And I think maybe later I'll be able to watch it as like a background type of show. Sure. But for right now, maybe I was over criticizing every single thing that came out of her mouth. Just with how closely we did the case to it. Yeah, exactly. So I feel that it was maybe too soon for me to go watch it. (laughs) It's always too soon to start talking about Casey Anthony again. I agree. But it's, um, I think it's still worth a watch. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that she, brings up but it still has not swayed my opinion if you're the type of person that can stand on the fence on an issue and can unbiasedly look that look at both sides definitely recommend go watch it right now yeah if you're of, of the opinion that there is absolutely no other person that killed this kid than herself and that everything that happened afterwards was her doing then i would say watch it knowing it's gonna piss you off yeah yeah i don't know i just i i don't believe i i believe parts of her story sure i don't think she's innocent no so i think that she definitely has some trauma that has happened in her life and i can't deny nor have really any reason to deny any of that but at the end of the day I don't think that she doesn't know what happened to her daughter that's the part that gets me yeah it might and see I'm such a fence type of person where I can sit on top of the fence and look at both sides for sure and like you said it's for sure trauma probably something happened Mm -hmm. but what happened to your daughter you know Stop saying you don't know. Exactly. Guess what? They cannot try you again. Right. For the murder of your daughter. Exactly. But that's another thing. They could try her for like obstruction of justice if like one new bit of information is shared. Yeah. Then they could drag her back in on the lesser charge. Uh Uh-huh. And although it might not be a full victory... Or, I mean, never, it's never going to be made right. No. I think she's very, she's very smart. She, unfortunately. She is very smart. (laughs) Yeah, she is. She is very manipulative. And she's got a really strong legal team that she's made personal relationships with Mm -hmm. since everything happened. And so she has a lot of support in that regard to help, um, 
to help guide her and navigate th- yeah. her through having done this special and to probably be like, hey, don't even go there on these topics. Stay right. in this lane. Right. She's very so. careful. She chooses her words very, very carefully. She does. And that comes down to even her her cadence is mm-hmm. very, very chiseled out. Like yeah. She knows exactly what word she's choosing to say out loud. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes... This is why it was bothering me because I knew that going into it that she is very deliberate on what she's saying that I was picking apart her body language yeah her facial expressions that to me and I am by of course no means an expert but as a human I'm like you a lying bitch yeah Absolutely not. Yeah. These are crocodile tears, tears all day long. Okay. Yeah.